The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to say a special thank you to Penn Haygood. I don't think she's here this morning, or she's on her... Is she? Ah, there she is. Thank you, Penn, for holding the fort last week and doing an excellent job, I'm told. So thank you very much for that. It's a blessing to be in a congregation where we have gifted uh, lay people who can teach as well, so I'm very grateful for that, and I know you were all blessed by it because I've heard that over the course of the week. In fact, I came back to some degree with fear and trembling as a consequence, <laughs> but here we are. We are in John chapter 7, and we are going to go ahead and read through um, the first 32 verses of John chapter 7. We've looked at some of these verses already, but context is crucial. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them up. And I said that this week uh, we are taking track of who's actually bringing their Bibles with them. And so we are. Bill is back there in the back, and he is going through and taking roll. So just letting you know, we don't want your name to be blotted out of the book. So John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly to him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So we said the context for this section of John's gospel is that Jesus had been ministering for the most part in Galilee. That is the region to the north. Judea was to the south. He had been ministering up there in Galilee, and he had been wildly successful. He had been performing great signs and wonders. We noticed that crowds, sometimes numbering in excess of 5,000 people, were following Jesus wherever he went. They were enthralled with him. In fact, there was a movement afoot to actually seize Jesus because he was so popular and forcibly make him the king. So there was this sense that this perhaps was the Messiah. But then when Jesus went on to explain what it really meant to be the Messiah, the implications of that for their lives, that he was the true bread which had come down from heaven and that they were starving without him, we're told that the people began to take offense and they began to fall away. As long as he was feeding them physically, they were perfectly happy. When he began to tell them that they were spiritually starving and that he alone could satisfy that inner longing of their hearts and their souls, they said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And we're told that many that had been following him turned back and followed him no more. So all of a sudden, the tide had turned. And Jesus' family members apparently were troubled by this. Now, the text tells us that many of his own family members did not yet believe in him. They would come to believe in him. In fact, one of his brothers would only come to believe in him after the resurrection. But one thing was for sure, whether or not they understood exactly who he was and what he had come to do, they liked being close to somebody as popular as Jesus. And when that popularity began to wane, well, they were troubled by this. And that's what we have here. They were coming to Jesus and they say, look, uh, you've run afoul of the people up here in Galilee, but actually the action's down in Judea anyway. It's down near Jerusalem. So we've got a plan for you to sort of get back on top. All you need to do is go down to Jerusalem and do the things there that you were doing up here. Perhaps don't preach so much, um, but just perform some miracles and, and everything is going to be great. You'll be even more popular down there than you are up here. Now, Jesus knew that they had an agenda. He knew that they were not really interested in what he had come to do. They were just concerned for his popularity. And so he told them in no uncertain terms that he was not going to the feast, that it was all right for them to go to the feast, but his time had not yet come. And when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, we noted the fact that Jesus' life was always under the sovereignty of God. 
that everything was carefully planned, plotted out for Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why he had no anxiety whatsoever. That was one of the things that always struck people about Jesus, that even in the most tumultuous of circumstances, Jesus had serenity. He had that peace, which we talk about in the liturgy, that peace which passes human understanding. And one of the reasons Jesus had that peace was because he knew that his times were in God's hands. And we ask the question, do we realize that the same is true for us? That if we're Christians, our times are in God's hands. He's the one that numbers the hairs on our head and notes the fall of the sparrow from the sky. Well, Jesus knew that, and he knew that his time had not yet come. We said that this is a refrain throughout the Gospel of John. We hear it in the section that I just read to you twice. His hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. At any rate, we're told the disciples did go up to the feast. This was the Feast of Booths. Uh, it took place once a year when the Jews would go up to Jerusalem and you would not get a hotel room or anything like that, but you would actually pitch a tent outside of the city and you would go and live in that tent for a few weeks. And this was to remind them of the fact that they had been wanderers, sojourners in the wilderness for those 40 years, lest they forget well, Jesus, we're told, remained in Galilee. But after his brothers, and you see this in verse 10, had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. I wonder if Jesus wasn't just curious to know exactly what the people were saying about him. You know, on one occasion, he asked the disciples outright, he said, who do people say that I am? And everybody had an answer. Everybody said, oh, well, you're one of the prophets, you're John the Baptist, and so forth. But at one point, Jesus got very personal with them, and he said, but who do you say that I am? Jesus was curious as to what people were saying about him. And he went up to the feast, and he went up privately, incognito, and he wants to hear what people are saying about him. And he's hearing all sorts of things. Perhaps because the disciples were present and Jesus' reputation was far flung, the people were saying all sorts of things. They were asking all kinds of questions. One in particular, who is he? Who is this man? I suspect they went up to the disciples and to Jesus' brothers and said, just, just who is he? Well, who is he that he's able to do these amazing, extraordinary things? And you'll notice in the text that two answers are given. And I would submit to you that we give these answers as well. One answer is that Jesus was a good man. This is normally the answer of people who have an idle curiosity in Jesus now, that is to say that they, they know that he has had a profound impact on the world. They know that he is a worker of amazing things, that he's said some wonderful things. And they say, well, Jesus is a good man. I call this the safe answer. Why is it a safe answer? Because it offends nobody. Nobody is offended when you say that Jesus is a good man. A Muslim can agree with the fact that Jesus is a good man. A Jew can agree that Jesus is a good man. Even atheists will agree that Jesus was a good man. I mean, he taught some remarkable things, didn't he? He said that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, that's a pretty good thing. 
He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, that's the golden rule. Well, that's nothing wrong with that. So one of the answers that was given to the question, who exactly is Jesus, is this safe answer that Jesus is a good man. Now, one of the other answers that was given, and I call this the religious answer, it's in verse 12. I say it's the religious answer because, for the most part, it was the answer of the Jewish religious leaders. And incidentally, in the Gospel of John, when you hear that expression, the Jews, sometimes this has been used as justification for anti-Semitism in the church, that the Jews did this against Jesus, the Jews did that against Jesus, the Jews crucified Jesus. You need to understand that in the Gospel of John, that expression, the Jews, is always a reference to the Jewish religious leaders, specifically. In fact, you'll notice in our text today that it speaks of the Jews and it speaks of the crowds. It speaks of the Jews and it speaks of the people. So when it talks about the Jews here in the fourth gospel, what it means is the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. What were they saying about Jesus in answer to the question, who is this? Well, some of the people were saying, well, he's a good man. He does good things. He heals the sick and so forth. And he, and he teaches righteous things. The religious leaders, however, responded, no, no, he is leading the people astray for he undermines the law of Moses. Now, what I love about this particular section is that it really puts a fine point on the, the whole argument that you and I have to make up for ourselves in our own minds how we regard Jesus. And what is interesting is that there doesn't appear to be much middle ground here. C.S. Lewis said that if you are a Christian... There's really only one possibility that is available to you. Lewis referred to this as the trilemma. He said, really, when it comes to Jesus Christ, every single one of us is faced with a decision, and we have one of three options. That Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, namely the Lord of glory, or Jesus is a liar, or Jesus is a lunatic. He said, but the one thing you cannot say about Jesus is that he was a good man. The safe answer is the one unacceptable answer. This is how Lewis put it, because only Lewis can put it this way, as I'm sure Brian would tell you. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher. You hear that often today. Oh, Jesus is a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. So you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But this is my favorite part. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. That's absolutely true, isn't it? Some people wanted to take the safe 
road. Jesus is a good man. And that's what many people want to say today. It is the non-threatening, non-offensive answer. And in our woke culture, that's the safe answer. But I want you to understand every single one of us has a decision forced upon us. You cannot say Jesus is a good man if Jesus was going around claiming to be God and he was perfectly sane and knew that he was not God, he would be a deceiver. On the other hand, if he really did believe that he was God and he wasn't God, then he'd be a what? A madman, a a lunatic, a, a megalomaniac. Now, what's interesting is that many people don't want to say that Jesus was a lunatic because so many of the things that he said, and interestingly enough, very few of the people that lived in Jesus' day referred to him as a lunatic because he had an authority about him when he spoke. That's one of the things that astonished the people. How is it that this man has such learning when he's never been formally trained? He's never gone to universities, never been formally licensed. He hadn't gone to any of the rabbinical academies, and yet here is this man. He speaks, and he speaks with authority, and he always had an answer. He could always outwit his opponents, so he didn't strike anybody as a lunatic. Now, to the religious leaders, he was an evil man, but to the crowds, they had a hard time believing that. He was doing these marvelous things. He was helping the poor, which was something that nobody in the first century did. Those who were afflicted with illnesses and diseases found that they were cleansed lepers, who were outcasts in societies, found that they were able to come back into the fold. So what was Jesus? Well, he can't be a bad man. Well, if he's not a liar, and he's not a lunatic, then what is he? Lewis said there's only one option open to us, and that is that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And it's interesting to note Jesus never claimed to be merely a good man. As Lewis pointed out, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, to be God in the flesh, and to speak with the authority of Almighty God. Now, if you accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Word made flesh, you need to understand that there are implications of that profession for your life. In other words, you can't say that Jesus is Lord and remain indifferent to what Jesus commands. And that's what the Lord is getting at here in the rest of this section. So the first question to ask this morning is, what do you think of Jesus? Are you out there giving the safe answer? Well, he's, he's a good man but you don't think that he's the son of God? If you don't think he's the son of God, folks, then he is either a liar or he is a lunatic, but those are the only options open to you. Now, if you are a Christian and you claim that Jesus is Savior and Lord, then the second question is this. Are you doing what he says? Are you being obedient to his commands? Are you taking his words at face value and employing them in your life in the way that you live? See, the problem is we want to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
We want to be delivered from damnation and hell. I mean, nobody wants to go to hell even out of a sense of curiosity. You might visit Ravenel or, um, you know, Labico or someplace like that out of a sense of curiosity, but nobody wants to go to hell even out of a sense of curiosity. So we want Jesus as our Savior. My goodness, if we can be delivered from guilt and shame, by all means, Jesus, deliver us. But one of the things that we don't want is for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. And here's the problem, folks. You cannot have one without the other. You can't have Jesus as Savior if you do not have Jesus as Lord. So when we stand up every Sunday, immediately following the sermon, and we profess our faith in the words of the creed, and we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, the question is this, are we obeying his words? See... If Jesus is not Lord of all, every aspect of your life, then Jesus is not Lord at all in your life. Now, we all recognize that we see through a glass dimly. That's the way the Apostle Paul said. And there are so many things that Jesus said that, quite frankly, we struggle with. How many of you have read things in the Bible, things that Jesus said or the Apostle Paul said, and, and you have to admit, you really don't understand them? Anybody out there struggle with that? I struggle with that. So, so what's the response to that? Because oftentimes we say, unless I can understand it, I am not going to do it, which is probably sound advice when it comes to any human being speaking. But when it comes to God and he tells us what to do, and there's not confusion about what to do, we're just confusion about how it's going to play out in our lives, why we should do it. The answer that Jesus is giving us is that we need to follow. We don't obey because we understand. We obey in order that we might understand. Let me repeat that. We don't obey because we understand. We obey so that we might understand. Now, there are a number of doctors out here in this audience today, a couple of surgeons as well. It's one thing to go to medical school. It's one thing to be trained in surgery. But until you first take the scalpel in hand, you really do not know surgery. <laughs> And I submit to you that the same is true when it comes to the Christian life. Until you are actually following Jesus, obeying his commandments, making him Lord of every aspect of your life, you really don't understand what it means to be a Christian. I had a professor in seminary, and he had a young woman that came to him, and she was really struggling. She was really struggling with Christianity. Uh, she'd been raised in a Christian home, but she had doubts and questions, and she really had started to doubt whether or not she was a believer at all anymore. And she came to him and she said, give me some advice. What should I do? And he asked her about her life, and it was clear that she was living a life that was not consistent with the Christian gospel. And he said, you want to believe? She said, yes. He said, I suggest that you start obeying. 
She said, what? He said, well, I suggest to you that you start to live the Christian life, that you forsake the life that you're in, that you know is inconsistent with the law of God, and begin to live the Christian life. And I suspect as you begin to live the Christian life, you'll begin to understand the Christian life, and you'll find that your faith is restored. And she decided to take him at his word, and so she did. She broke off the relationship that she was in because she knew that the scripture said, don't be unequally yoked. She began to follow God. She began to say her prayers, all these things that we're told to do. And lo and behold, she found that her strength was, her faith was strengthened. And you know, the same is true for you and for me. Oftentimes when people struggle, one of the first questions I ask them, if they're going through a period of doubt or uncertainty, I will often ask them, is there some sin in your life? Some unconfessed sin that you don't want to deal with, that you don't want to face up to? Because let me tell you something, if God seems distance, distant, he's not the one that's moved. You're the one who's moved. And there's always, when there's repentance, a welcome and a restoration. So the people were asking the question, who is this man? The different answers were being given. Some said that he's wicked. Others said that he was a good man. But actually, that response of a good man, while it is the prevalent answer, is the safe answer, it is not the true answer. Jesus Christ either is the Lord or he is something far worse than that. And if he is the Lord, then he must be obeyed. St. Anselm of Canterbury put it this way. He said, for I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but I believe in order that I may understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Well, that wasn't the only question that they were asking these people as Jesus arrived at this Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. It wasn't just, who is he? But when Jesus finally decided to make himself known, after he'd heard what everybody said, he'd been up to the temple, we're told, and he began to teach the people. If you look at verse 14, about the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So that's the second question they were asking. The first question was, Who is this man? And all kinds of answers were flying about. But the second question they asked when he began to teach was, Where did he get this authority? Where did he get all of this learning? Reminds me of the story from the American Revolution about Ethan Allen, not the furniture maker, but the patriot. It was the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga, and Ethan Allen was one of the subordinate commanders. If you know anything about Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys, uh, they were sort of rough around the edges. And Ethan Allen was given the job of spearheading this night attack to seize the fort. And so they went under the cover of darkness, they attacked the fort, they took out the sentries almost immediately, silently. Nobody was even prepared for it. And then he advanced through the center of the fort, one of those sort of stockade forts, went through the center across the parade ground over to where the officers' quarters were located. 
And he was dragging along one of these British soldiers, and he demanded to know where the commander of the fort was. The commander of the fort was a man by the name of Captain William Delaplace. He dragged this soldier up the stairs and then put him in the care of another soldier, and he went up and he pounded on the door, the officer's quarters, and there was a shuffling inside, and then a candle was lit, and then the door opened, and there stood Captain Delaplace. This is the middle of the night in nothing but his vanity. He's just standing there with nothing on. And Ethan Allen says, I demand the surrender of this fort. Well, it was dark. I mean, Delaplace couldn't see who it was, and he was confused, and and. He was silent, and Ethan Allen bellowed again, I demand the surrender of this fort. And Delaplace responded, by whose authority? And I love Ethan Allen's response. He said, by whose authority? By whose authority? By the authority of the great God Jehovah and the Continental Congress. That was the question. By whose authority? Who do you think you are? Well, that was the second question that the people put to Jesus. Who is this man? And by whose authority does he presume to speak, to say these things, to make these claims? Claims like, I and the Father are one. Claims like that he has the power to remit sins. Claims that to know him is to know life everlasting. Claims that if you feed on him, you will never be hungry. You will never thirst again. By whose authority did Jesus presume to say these things? Now, you need to understand some of the background here in order to understand what's going on. Uh, This is a somewhat technical section of the Gospel of John. And the first thing to keep in mind is that this was not Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem. He'd actually visited the city on other occasions. It's recorded in John chapter 2. It's also recorded in John chapter 5. Incidentally, this is just sort of a sidebar. This is the reason why we know that Jesus' ministry took place over the course of three years. If you read the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might get the impression that Jesus' ministry was only a year long. But we know that it was three years long. Why? Because John's gospel mentions three separate Passovers. That's the only reason we know that Jesus' ministry was three years. So John mentions the fact that Jesus had been in Jerusalem before. And you'll recall that on those previous occasions, Jesus had run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders because he had performed an act of mercy, but that act of mercy had taken place on the Sabbath. You'll remember that he had gone up to the the temple, and just outside the temple there was a pool called Bethesda or Bethsaida. Some of you have actually been there. If you were there this past summer, we had a healing service right there near St. Anne's Pool is what it's called today, but it was the pool of Bethesda. It was a pool with five covered colonnades, and there was this man who was lame. We're told he had been lame there since birth, and this pool was believed to have healing properties. It was probably built over some sort of artesian well or something like that, but from time to time, the water would bubble up. And people believed in a superstitious age that what was happening was an angel was coming down and stirring the water, and if you could be the first one in the water, there's even competition to be healed. 
if you could be the first one into the water when it was stirred, well, then you would be healed. And Jesus is coming along, and he sees all of these people. And the description in John's gospel is particularly powerful. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And I love that description. Why? Because I think that's an apt description of you and me spiritually. We're blind. We cannot understand. We're lame and paralyzed. We cannot in any way get ourselves to the healing. And so Jesus comes in the midst of all of these people, greatly afflicted, and he sees this man shoved to the back of the crowd, and he asks him this question. It seems so absurd, really, when you think about it. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? I say it sounds like an absurd question, because why else would he be there? But it's not an absurd question when you stop and think about it, because you understand that If you are healed, what that means is that there's going to be a change that takes place. You cannot remain. In fact, Jesus says to the man, rise and walk, take up your mat. Why did he have to take up his mat? Because he wasn't coming back there again. Let me tell you something. If Jesus Christ heals you, spiritually or otherwise, that means that you're going to have to live a different life. You can't go back to your old way of doing things. If you've discovered that he is the Lord, then he has to be the Lord of every aspect of your life. Well, at any rate, Jesus healed this man. It was a great thing for the man, but it got Jesus into a great deal of trouble because the day on which he performed this act of mercy was the Sabbath. And the Jews, namely the Jewish religious leaders, were adamant. No work was to be done on the Sabbath. It was a violation of the Ten Commandments, and it was punishable. And they had stirred up so much trouble against Jesus on that occasion that that's the reason why Jesus left Judea in the first place and went to Galilee and started his ministry. So now he's back, and here's the problem. The Jewish religious leaders had not forgotten that. That's one of the reasons we're told that Jesus didn't want to go up to the feast with his brothers because the people down there were out to kill him. They were out to kill him. So he went up privately. Once he hears what the people are saying, he suddenly comes out. He begins to teach publicly. But immediately, those who were opposed to him stir up trouble again. And his life once more is in danger. John chapter 5 says they were out to kill him. The religious leaders had not forgotten. Now here's the real issue in John chapter 7 as far as Jesus is concerned. It's the real place and purpose of the law in Jewish life. Why was the law given? Now the law obviously was important to the Jews because violation of it was punishable by death. But what was the real purpose and function of the law? And Jesus said the problem for the Jews is that they assumed that obedience to the law was the means to salvation, and Jesus was saying that was not the case at all. In fact, if they insisted upon being saved by the law, the very law that they thought would save them would actually condemn them. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, if you judge by the law, you will be judged by the law. 
Look here at verses 14 and following. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? But Jesus knew exactly who was seeking to kill him. He answered, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They want to know, where did Jesus get his authority? What right does he have to speak this way? You need to understand that in the first century, originality was not prized. They didn't like somebody coming out with original ideas. In the ancient world, and this is very different from our culture today, but in the ancient world, you only believe those things that were tried and true, those things that were tested, those things that were old. Now, we live in a culture where we thrive on the novel. Anything that is new, and sensational. We love that sort of thing. But that's not the way it was in the ancient world. Things that were new, novel, sensational were suspect. And so here is Jesus and he's teaching, but he seems to be teaching in a way that is contrary to the way that the rabbis had taught. And so there was some suspicion. Now, he obviously spoke as one having authority. People were drawn to him. It was like E.F. Hutton. When he spoke, people listened. But at the same time, this seemed to be a new thing. And so there were questions as to what was going on. Jesus seemed to be violating the law. And how does he answer? Well, he answers in a very interesting way. He basically accuses the scribes and the Pharisees of hypocrisy. And he brings up this whole issue of circumcision. He said, the law states that every male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, sometimes the eighth day falls on a what? On a Sabbath. And yet he says, here you are performing the circumcision on a Sabbath because the Talmud, that is the interpretation of the law by the rabbi, says that it's acceptable to do so. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. He says, yeah, that's what the law says. He says, but it is an act on the Sabbath. Moreover, think about this. What circumcision really involves is a mutilation of the flesh. It's a mutilation of the flesh, and yet it's perfectly acceptable for you to do that on the Sabbath. He says, but I perform what? One act of mercy on the Sabbath, and my act of mercy is the restoration of the body, whereas yours is the mutilation of the body, and you call me a lawbreaker? And everybody was silent. Because Jesus' answer was brilliant. Not only brilliant, but it was true. He said, my act of mercy 
was done to actually save a life. And the text says that they wanted to kill him all the more. <laughs> Why? Because they had no response, no answer to what he had said. Jesus goes to the heart of what the law is really there for. Jesus doesn't dispute the fact that the law is good. He doesn't say that you shouldn't circumcise on the eighth day. He acknowledges that the law is good, but what he is telling these Jewish religious leaders is that they don't understand why the law was given in the first place. Why was the law given? What is the purpose of the law? Jesus goes on to say that the purpose of the law is not to save anybody. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to keep you from sinning, folks. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to reveal the fact that you have already sinned. It is to drive you to the one who speaks and speaks with an authority that is not his own. It is an authority that comes from God. Now, that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He talks about the function of the law. Those of you who are in our Roman study, we've been looking at this very thing. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. Robert the Bruce, if you know any of your history about Scotland, was the famous king of Scotland in the 12th century. Um, he was rebelling against English rule under King Edward. And there is a story about Robert the Bruce that I think is very helpful at this point. Robert the Bruce had lost all of his support, and he was fleeing King Edward, and uh, he was hiding out. And the British were closing, or the English were closing in on him at this point, and he was very anxious, and he was on the run. And he thought at one point, as he was hiding, that he had escaped them. And then he heard this blood-curdling sound. It was the baying of bloodhounds. But what was particularly terrifying was that as he listened closely, he realized they were the baying of his own bloodhounds. They had captured his bloodhounds, which were there to protect him. They had given the dogs his scent, and the dogs were now after him. The very dogs that were meant to protect him were now being used against him. And he knew there was no way that he could outrun the bloodhounds. I want to suggest to you that's exactly the way it is with the law. If you try to live your life by the law, as these scribes and Pharisees were doing, you will be condemned by the law. And that's what Jesus revealed, that here they were saying that they were keeping the law, and in fact they were violating the law, and the only way that they could do that was to justify it in their own eyes by making exceptions. And let's be honest, we do the same thing, don't we, in our lives? When somebody calls us out, we always have an excuse as to why we did what we did. And the law is running us down. It's pursuing us like those bloodhounds. Well, the story of Robert Bruce doesn't end there. You know that he doesn't get captured by the English. And that's because as he was running through this forest with these bloodhounds, his own bloodhounds pursuing him, we're told that he came to a river in the forest and he plunged in. And he allowed that river to carry him two or three miles down. The dogs were along the banks for some time but he came out on the opposite side of the forest, and all of a sudden, things were silent. 
Having plunged into that river, the dogs lost his scent because it was washed off. And Jesus was saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, you want to know by whose authority I'm doing these things? I do them not of my own authority, by the one who sent me. And the law will never save you. You can try as you might, but you will only serve to break the law. And the only way that you'll be able to live with yourselves is if you justify yourselves and make excuses for yourself, but you can never do that. This past Thursday, I told the class on Romans, I said, the real purpose of the law is to serve like a mirror. A mirror can reveal that your face is dirty, but folks, the mirror cannot cleanse you. The only thing the mirror can do is show you where the soap and water is. So here was Jesus at the feast. Who is this man? Well, maybe he's a good man. No, that's not acceptable. I'm either the Lord, I'm a liar, I'm a lunatic, take your choice. All right, well, then if you're the Lord, then Jesus would say, why are you not obeying me? Because if I am Lord at all, I must be Lord of all. While we're trying to obey you, Jesus says, that's not enough. What God demands is perfection. And if you're trying to save yourself by means of the law, by living a good life, by being an upstanding citizen, he said, I tell you, the very thing that you think will save you will destroy you. There's only one way to be saved. And Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The old hymn put it well. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as so. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of words, tis all of grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's our only hope. It was the only hope for these Jewish religious leaders, the only hope that you and I have. What do you make of Jesus Christ? You simply think that he's a good man, or is he your Lord and your Savior? And if he is your Lord and Savior, are you obeying him? Not in an effort to be saved, because you cannot save yourself. The law will simply condemn you. Are you coming to him, plunging yourself beneath that crimson tide that you might be washed whiter than snow and you are following him not because you have to but because you want to, because you love him? Because when you begin to do that, all the things that you didn't understand before suddenly begin to become clear. All of a sudden, you begin to understand Fetus corans intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Next week when we come together, we'll ask that question.
can this be the Christ? Can anyone do more than he has already done? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Gospel of John. We thank you that even though it is a description of Jesus' encounter with the people in the first century, the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and even though we would like to think that we are different from them, the reality is, in many ways, we are just like them. We think that we are good people. We think that we can follow the law and justify ourselves, but the reality is is that if we listen closely, we will hear the baying of our own bloodhounds pursuing us. Grant us the grace to flee to Jesus, to flee to him as our Savior, to that fountain which cleanses. But then grant us the grace to follow, even when we don't understand, to believe that we might begin to see things clearly. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.